I'm Kate Daniels. At a time when people are in such turmoil about ourselves, looking at differences and reasons to divide, one of the big topics is white privilege. Educating ourselves is the path to understanding and healing. The education is all around us if we just look for it. And Brendan Kiley, a New York Times bestselling author, is a great educator. He's been a high school teacher, and so as an author, he has a real talent for communicating in general and very much so with young adults. He joins us to discuss his newest book, The Other Talk. Brendan Kiley, good morning, and thank you so greatly for being with us today. Thanks so much for having me. Really glad to be here. And I'm so grateful that you are a storyteller, that you are also passionate about writing, and that you have this latest book, The Other Talk, Reckoning with Our White Privilege, because... Well, it's just a phenomenal book. You know, we have to be hiding under a rock if we don't know that this is a key issue and challenge and conversation that needs to happen in our society. So I am so thankful that we have this book, The Other Talk, available for us to uh, at least shed some light on this uh, really critical topic. Well, thank you. I I, uh, I appreciate your enthusiasm and, and and likewise, I share it, too. It's a deep passion of mine to uh, try to do what I can and be a partner in uh, meaningful acts of racial justice in our, in our country. And I think for, for me as a, as a white person, it means that I have to do a better job being able to speak about what white privilege is and how it's, um, how it's a part of my life. And, and I find that you have the ability with the stories that you share and, and just being honest about what has gone on, that it, it diffuses some of the defensiveness that some people have, you know, kind of just digging in their heels or kind of the back gets a little straighter because, yeah. you know, I what are you talking about, my white privilege? You know, there's just that resistance. But I feel in the way that you've written this, and I'm sure that that was thoughtful for you, uh, part of the process of writing to to be like that, was it? Absolutely. You know, I feel as though um, in the call to action that I have heard from so many uh, folks of color, black folks, indigenous folks, uh, asking more white people like myself to, to be involved in, uh, in, in racial justice, um, I think part of that call has really been for people like me to be able to tell my stories more honestly. Um, and so that's what I've tried to do in the book is my hope is that the book can be uh, can be helpful and useful to uh, to all folks who care about racial justice, but to white people in particular, um, to have a language and a framework for talking about white privilege. And so, in order to do that, absolutely, just as you suggest, I had to take a look at stories from my own life and try to approach them with as much humility as possible, and say, "So here's a funny story about me as a teenager," or here's a story about me in a, in, a, in a dialogue with a colleague, and review it now through the lens of, but how does my being a white person actually affect this story? Um, it's a funny thing. I'm not used to doing that. <laughs> but so often, so many of my friends of color do and are more accustomed to thinking about their racial identity and how it plays a role in their lives. And I thought it's about time that us white folks try to do 
uh, you know, a more consistent job of, of reflecting on how our racial identity plays a role in our lives, impacts our lives, and impacts the lives of, of others around us. And yes, that is what is needed. And to do so, I'm going to use the word collaboratively rather than thinking that, oh, well, there must be then something wrong. There was nothing wrong with me. You know, that kind of defensiveness that this this right. is really about sharing our stories and our experiences. Absolutely. So, you know, I, I really appreciate that you brought this up because I think that, you know, the subtitle, as you said, is reckoning with our white privilege. And I agree, you know, for so many people who are um, in my family, so many folks that I know who are struggling economically, they hear a phrase like white privilege and they think, well, that can't include me. I'm not, you know, I'm not rich. I'm not wealthy or, you know, I've barely been able to make the, my premium payments on my health care. And, and I, I absolutely recognize that. And I, and I think it's important for us to think about what white privilege really means and, and not be defensive, but to maybe try to listen um, to the stories that folks of color have to share with us and, and, and choose not to be defensive, but to believe them. And here's what I mean. It's something as simple as um, many people have discussed this before, but having access to walking into a pharmacy and being able to find a Band-Aid that sort of suits my skin color in some way is, is one small way in which I constantly feel invited into spaces in the book, I share some stories about traveling around the country um, side by side with a friend of mine who's a black man. I'm a white man. He's a black man. And it was stunning for me to see time and time and time again, no matter whether we were walking into a school together to do a presentation for students or into a bookstore or into a hotel lobby or through the airport and security, how often I could witness with my own two eyes the suspicion on the eyes of other people, in particular many white people, when looking at Jason, as if the assumption was that he didn't maybe necessarily belong there in the same way that I did. That's how deep and nuanced racism works in our country. And for me as a white person to reflect on that, I have to think about the flip side, that I was granted immediate access and invitation in all those moments. That's what white privilege is. It doesn't have, it, it may end up in, in a result that has to do with economics, but I think we first want to think really about what it means to simply walk around uh, as a white person in our society. Yes, precisely. I think one of the stories that may illustrate that as yours as a teenager, when when you were on, uh, what was it, the minivanning, you were, that, that whole experience, I, I think really has quite a lot to say. I, I, I appreciate it. I'll, I'll, if you don't mind, I'll take a minute to share that story. Yes. I'll, I'll, I'll try to, I'll try to, to tell it succinctly. I, I, as you mentioned, I am a storyteller. I can get carried away, so <laughs> cut me off whatever it needs to be. <laughs> but, but, I, but I appreciate you bringing it up because it is, it is illustrative of, of what we're talking about here. So um, I was 17 years old. I was the last of all my friends to get my license, so you know, I had a little chip on my shoulder, like, oh, finally, it's my turn to drive, you know, and I'm all very excited to to, to drive all my, you know, a bunch of my friends around in, in uh, the family minivan. And um, I'm bombing down Route 1 South. I grew up outside of Boston, and we're driving on the highway right uh, near where I lived. And um, and uh, what I don't realize is that I, uh, I, I'm i speeding. I mean, I knew I was speeding, but I, I didn't realize that I went through a speed trap. 
and so the uh, the speed limit dropped 10 miles an hour. So it meant that as I went through the speed trap, I was going 30 miles over the speed limit. This is dumb. This is dangerous. Um, and more to the point, it's illegal in two ways. I'm actually breaking the law, speeding, but also recklessly driving. And so uh, the police car pulls out behind me, lights flash, sirens go. Um, I have to pause here for a second because for all of your listeners uh, who, out there who are uh, folks of color, I think that it is pretty common in so many households for those families to have had the talk, uh, a talk about what to do in a moment like this. Um, my buddy Jason, who I mentioned earlier, um, and, and, and I have uh, gone on to talk about this quite a bit, about the talk that he got as a, uh, that his black mother uh, gave him growing up as a, as a black boy in Washington, D.C. And, and I didn't grow up with a talk like that. I didn't grow up with a talk that asked me to reflect on my racial identity in, in, in moments like this. And so, sure, lights flash, sirens go. I'm nervous, as anybody would be when you're getting caught doing something you shouldn't do. And, um, but I'm not nervous or scared for my life. And what a tremendous difference. Jason Reynolds is a, you know, a, a, not only is a buddy of mine, but he's the National Ambassador for Children's Literature three years in a row. And to this day, when he gets pulled over by the police for a traffic violation, his hands shake as he holds the steering wheel because he knows it might be the last breath he draws. What a terrifying difference for someone like me who, not afraid like that at all, instead just nervous because I got caught speeding, floored it and kept tearing down the highway. My friends were like, Brendan, pull over, pull over. What are you doing? And I'm saying, I don't know where it's safe to pull over. But when I pull into uh, an empty parking lot and, you know, go through the rigmarole with the police officer with the license and the registration, and he's asking me questions if I've had alcohol or anything, and, of course, no, no, not at all. And, and, and he asks, well, what are you doing? Why are you speeding? And I, I had the opportunity to go into a sob story to say, oh, I was trying to play mini golf. It wasn't working out. I'm supposed to go get ice cream, and everyone's yelling, and I just want to go home. I want to go home. And and I tell this story to young folks all the time because, I mean, everyone knows where I'm going with this on one level, which is, did I get a ticket? No. Did I get a written warning? No. But that's not why I'm telling the story. I'm telling the story because of what the police officer said to me next. And every time I have to tell it, it's like a little fish hook in my gut that tugs and tugs and tugs to remind me what white privilege is in America. Because he said to me, go home, be safe, and keep your friends safe. And I think about that to this day, because it means that the police officer looked at me with compassion. He looked at me as a kid who deserved a second chance. And I'm so grateful for that. But the kind of dignity that, dignity that was afforded to me in that moment is the kind of dignity that all people in our country should be afforded in that moment. And as all too many families of color know, and the reason why they have the talk is they're not afforded that dignity. So the least that white folks like me can do is begin to have this other talk and talk about what it means to have white privilege and think about what can we do to participate in the meaningful action to help um, create a fairer and more just society so that all folks in our society are, are granted the same dignity that I am, whether that's in an interaction with a law enforcement officer or, quite frankly, those simple interactions in the pharmacy. Yes, exactly. And at the risk of sounding like I'm pounding it at a nail that's already in, I, I think this is such a key story because we know the, the other 
side of it. We know in our, in not certainly in our recent history the kinds of police stops that have been made and how well tragic, how deadly those have been. And so to right. see that stark difference, I I feel you're you're just you know giving us this wealth of insight and information if we choose to to acknowledge it. If we, yeah, and, 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 you know, this is, again, as you mentioned before, and I think it's really, really important to, to, to reiterate and emphasize, this is not about getting defensive, right? This is, no. first of all, my story is not anti-police. I, I have law enforcement in my family. I love them. I know their jobs are really hard. It is not easy. But it is also true that we can be open to the kind of critique to enable us to be the people we want to be. I thought about that often when I was a teacher. I was a, I'd worked at a high school in New York City for 10 years, and I really cared about the students. I really wanted to be a good teacher. They deserved that, right? And, and that was something that I really wanted to do. But in order for me to be the teacher I want to be, I have to listen to feedback from the students, from other faculty members, from administrators, from families, even though I didn't want to. <laughs> and, and, and to be open to that feedback enables me to be the person I want to be. And for me, that's part of the motivation and the spirit behind writing the other talk, Reckoning with Our White Privilege, to provide white folks like me that same kind of opportunity to be open to um, the discussion about white privilege so that we can be the meaningful partners in uh, a more just and fair society that I think we want to be, but often can't be because we're not even speaking the right language yet. Yes. And and to understand that that's it, again, not be defensive, but realize uh-huh. what is what is happening and how to make this a better and more peaceful and just country world society. And and I feel that with this book, The Other Talk, that you are giving us such a great opportunity because as an adult, I can appreciate reading this. Students can read this as well. Then we can really have opportunities for intelligent and really heartfelt conversation. Yeah, absolutely. I, I appreciate that because that's the hope is that it's, it's, a, it's a tool that can be used to, to create this kind of conversation for, for older folks, uh, or I, I prefer to say those of us who are young at heart. And, then, yes. and those of us who are who are young in their living, and um, and and I, I I think it's essential to to remind um, the adults out there who are listening that uh, that young people out there uh, and and young white people really want this. They're clamoring for it. There was a uh, an article in the Washington Post earlier this summer that was speaking about a community in northern Michigan that was grappling with how to talk about race and, and racism and privilege in the schools and in their community. And they interviewed a girl who had just finished second grade, a young white girl who had just finished second grade. And they were asking her about all this. And she said, although it made me feel bad to learn about racism in this way for the first time, it made me want to learn more so that I could do more. And if that second grader has that spirit, I feel like we young at heart, older folks, owe it to her and to all the young folks out there to engage in this conversation as courageously and honestly as possible. And that's why I tried to outline in the book is that sometimes it's hard for us to share our stories quite so honestly. So why not talk about Brendan Kiley then? (laughs) You can talk about my stories and you can can maybe relate 
a little bit to some of the anecdotes that I share from my teen years, from my middle school years, from my years in college, from my years um, as an adult in a variety of industries. And, you know, I'm, I'm sharing that I didn't know what I didn't know in these situations. And now that I know more, I hope that it can be useful for others to learn from, too. And that's actually a key phrase, Brendan. I didn't know what I didn't know. It, it, that's, yeah. That is something also so big that we need to acknowledge and explore. Absolutely. I think that, that goes to the point about being defensive, right? That I, that I, I, think, I think it's okay for us in, in many of these conversations to, to, to recognize that if we haven't been given a language or a framework or a narrative that, um, that helps us better understand what white privilege is, then how on earth can we be expected to, to already know everything about it, right? We're, I think it's, it's, it's odd, and it's odd when I say that, I think when I'm in communities that are predominantly communities of color, because you know, when I'm speaking in those communities, often people can say, how could you not know this? You know, <laughs> we, we witness this every day. Um, yeah. But it's very true. That, that there's a lot that I, I don't recognize and I'm, and I'm blind to because I haven't been taught to look for it yet. And the more I've begun to investigate and reflect on my own white privilege and my own, as the, as the poet Claudia Rankin says, essentially just living as a white person, <laughs> um, you know, that, that I, I begin to have more of that language and I can, I can know more about what I didn't know. And so I, I thank you for, for echoing that phrase because I think it's important for us to, to grant that part of the humanity for so many of us who, who want to care but just haven't recognized exactly what it is that we haven't understood yet. Yes. And be open to the fact that this is all educational and informational, yes. right? That's what we're about. Absolutely. Well, and that's why my hope is that the way that the book is structured will be uh, will be in, in, instructional in some way. And that you know, I start with many stories from my own life, and I do um, I do a kind of mirroring, as I shared with you earlier, that kind of dual experience that I would have, uh, you know, getting pulled over versus the way that Jason feels. But I do that in a, in a number of instances, so that I can kind of set up what it means to for the things in my life that I take for granted, right? But I use that as a jumping off point to talk about history and how some of this has been created. And I use that as a jumping off point to then go on to, to share some other stories and say, so maybe if we can be better listeners, those of us who are white, when folks of color are sharing these stories, and maybe if we can choose to believe them instead of choosing to be defensive, we might become more meaningful partners in action. And the book moves in that progression so that we move from stories to learning how to listen more, to thinking about how we can be involved in meaningful action. And that's my hope, is that at the end of the day, we're inspired, those of us who are white, to be more self-aware, to listen more, learn more, and then to hopefully engage and work with folks of color who have been working for racial justice for so very long already. Yes. And and for me, as a white person, feeling that, oh, well, certainly we've arrived, right? I, I'm 
this was pre-pandemic right. the, and not seeing some of the really harsh realities, but kind of having that sense. But, oh, no, no, we still have quite a road to go. But if we open ourselves up to this and, and that word self-awareness, if we allow that to become central to us as well and and having these conversations. So as the book progresses, so also is it great um, in educational circles, in, in schools and Teachers are able to download a resource to use it in classrooms. That's correct. Right? There's a reading group guide that helps that helps navigate this, um, and as as my former teacher self would say, to scaffold the learning experience. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and 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 I think, and I'm grateful for that because I think that's really important, right? So these are really tough subjects, and sometimes it's it's just hard to to really listen to and hear the the reality of some of the statistics, the reality of some of the harshness of, you know, what's what's real in our history and, and how that impacts today. So there are ways to structure this conversation in a classroom that can be um, that 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 um, that open up a conversation for learning opportunities and empower the students to use that information to better their lives and the lives of others around them. It, absolutely. Um, and, and as a you know as a as an educator and certainly as a former high school teacher, I think that's essential because it's you know it, um, I believe that uh, these, these conversations should be undergirded by hope. Because especially when we're talking with young folks, I think we owe it to them to model what hope looks like. And for me, that means believing that a better future is possible, but not only believing, not only wishing, but participating in making that future happen. Because how dare I not have hope for all the work that has come before me, the folks who were abolitionists, the folks who opened up their homes to the Underground Railroad, the folks who worked really hard to believe that we could rebuild our country in a new way during re- Reconstruction before that was dismantled, the folks who fought against Jim Crow, the folks who marched in Selma on Edmund Pettus Bridge. How dare I not have hope for all the hope that those folks have had before me and the work they have done? We owe it to our young people to deliver them some hope as well. Yes, absolutely. And in doing so, by ha- by educating our younger people, giving them the the bigger picture, more the whole picture, then we have this new generation that can really move forward in hope and and being constructive and and create this better world. Absolutely, and as I mentioned before, I've had the great opportunity to to travel to schools all across the country. Um, as I've been talking about some of my former books. And, um, you know, I hear this from young people, whether I'm in Anchorage, Alaska, or Orlando, Florida, or Portland, Maine, or Sacramento, California, or Seattle, where I have been and spoken in schools as well. And it's, it's, it's profound to hear that mantra from young people. I want to learn more so that I can do more. And that is what motivated me to write the other talk, because I, I feel like I owe it to them and we owe it to them to, to give them the tool that they that they are asking for uh, to become these meaningful participants in, in, in actions for racial justice. And I could see where there could be discouragement uh, in these times when things are still so unsettled and, you know, maybe there's online learning, maybe it's in-class learning, it's, it's you know, it's all still kind of, I think, a bit of a jumble and we're trying to sort things out. So 
to have this spark of hope and optimism and here's something we can work on and we can certainly do it in online situations and really look toward a better future. Yeah, absolutely. I I really appreciate that point because, I mean, forgive me for pausing for a second, but it kind of takes my breath away to think about the hard work that educators are are doing in throughout this pandemic, um, what they have been shouldering to try to uh, do their best to serve the young people of our country is just downright heroic. And um, to think about the perspective from families that are trying to navigate this. Um, and, and really, at the end of the day, all of the young people who are having to learn about the world in a context that none of us who are adults know how to help them. Because, mm. you know, we haven't, we haven't managed to live through a pandemic like this before in, 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 our, in our time. And the young folks are essentially having to create a new reality for themselves. So I, I deeply appreciate the point you're making because um, I, I think it's important that we provide uh, opportunities for hope and opportunities for when they look out the window and they see what looks like a lot of chaos out there because it is um, a, a, a way to enter that chaos with, with a kind of buoy to help them navigate it. Yes. Uh, I, I think of it in terms of, you know, all of that, how it, it is so new and, you know, all of a sudden it was just there. There was no like, okay, get ready. This is where we're transitioning to. No, it was boom. And and we just right. need to allow, in in terms of the pandemic, that, that people need grace to try and navigate and figure things out. So maybe mm-hmm. we also apply it to having... Uh, the other talk and realizing it, it's going to take time. Be gentle with each other. Be open to mm-hmm. to sharing your stories and listening. Absolutely. I, I really appreciate that perspective. I think it's important for us to be, to cultivate patience um, and to cultivate, uh, I really uh, applaud the, the word grace in this, <laughs> in this context. I think it's, I think it's essential um, and 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 as we do that, um, if we create uh, what can be a space of of um, of a real vulnerability, then then we have to uh, honor that with the courage to be honest as well. Oh, absolutely, yes. And that's why I feel that this book is just the right one at the right time that will help us be a guide if we allow it. You know, because it's it's you you're telling it so honestly uh, and genuinely that uh, it, with hope. So if we can receive that and use that as as one of our guides along this uh, path that we're on this journey, that then I I, th- I think we we can look to this bigger and better future. I I, I agree. I agree, and I'm and I feel so grateful. I I feel. You know, often authors, there's an image maybe that some people have that an author creates um, her or his work in, in isolation. And, and, I, and I, I can't not also share with your listeners how I feel like this book really comes out of a collective. It's, it's, um, it's my best attempt at aggregating, um, you know, some of the uh, wisdom that I have gathered from so many of my friends and colleagues and, and family members, etc. And it's, it's tremendous to feel like I'm writing this book right alongside the people 
who ha- or who are who are supporting it. You know, heroes of mine like Randy Rebai and Renee Watson and Jason Reynolds and Samira Ahmed and um, Olivia Cole and uh, and and a, and a host of others. Like just just a community of um, of of thought leaders around uh, around issues of racial and social justice. And and uh, I I can't. I can't claim to have created this work on my own. It's, it, it emerges from a community, as I think um, really all good things do. <laughs> yes. And, and, and that's perfect, isn't it? Because it's not like invent, you need to invent something. No, this is already life. And, and bringing it together in a, in a readable, more oh, what user-friendly form, I'm going to say, with this book uh, makes it so accessible uh, for us to have that. And then the resources, of course, if we want to delve more deeply, here are the mm-hmm. books, here, here are my mentors and the people I look to. Yeah, ab- absolutely. And, and as again, which I did try to do in the book, because that's, that's you know, after I, the, the, the sort of call to action, I, I tried to lay out some of the resources um, and, and whether it's books or authors or organizations that uh, from whom I've, I've learned so much and, and also uh, that other people can go um, to, to, yeah, to take that next step, to get more involved and to, to work with the people who've already been working for so long. It's it's beautiful. It's 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 harsh at times, but it's it is a beautiful work. And uh, Brendan Kiley, you are obviously so talented and uh, just such a great voice for this generation. Uh, I'm so grateful we've had this opportunity to have a conversation about the other talk. Let's mention your website because that is a good source of information. Oh, absolutely. Thanks. It's uh, www. Brendan Kiley, B-R-E-N-D-A-N-K-I-E-L-Y.com. And you can find out all about this book and, and others and, and where to find me there. Yes, exactly. So again, many thanks for this important work and the, uh, the optimism, the hope that this is really the beginning ripple that's going to go out into the world. I, thank you so much for having me. I really, really appreciate the time. It's been wonderful.